When I was 30, I made a big shift from working in sort of forest ecology resource management sector to learning. And part of the reason I did that is because people out who are at the fringe fields of collecting information in different ways and finding new things, they can know the greatest and most wonderful things. But if we don't also feel it and understand it deeply in our soul, we're never going to care. So being able to change the way that we are as humans individually and as societies is about, Donna Haraway calls it, staying with the trouble. So we have to stay with the tension of the things we don't really want to choose to do, but we kind of know we need to choose to do because something's motivating us deep internally, and that's some kind of care or connection. That's Deb Morrison, and this is The Stories That Brought You Here, a podcast dedicated to the stories of the people living in and around the Salish Sea. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and it's my pleasure to get to sit down with people and hear about the pivotal and life-changing stories of their lives that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Having grown up in coastal British Columbia in Gibsons, Deb spent a lot of her younger years roaming around the outdoors. It was these experiences that led her to form a deep relationship with nature. And it was her father and her grandmother that she lived with during those years that were both very influential in her life. After high school ended, she attended university and studied geography and resource management. This would launch her into a fascinating journey of unique work experiences, travel, teaching, and also exploring creative ways to manage forests and so much more. In this interview, Deb's going to reflect on these experiences as well as what it means to have a responsibility to place, finding common ground, how to get closer to truly living sustainably, and the importance of collaboration versus conflict. All that and so much more in this really riveting interview that I hope you enjoy even a fraction as much as I did, because I loved doing this interview with Deb. I found this to be deeply inspiring and incredibly thought-provoking. This was a wonderful little interview to do. And before we get rolling with it, I just want to mention that if you want to keep up to date with future episodes coming out, there are so many different ways to do so. I want to mention that I'm on Spotify, if you listen there, Apple Podcasts, generally wherever podcasts are listened to. I'm also now on YouTube, and the page name for that is The Stories That Brought You Here. So there are many different ways to subscribe to this podcast, which I hope you do. Something else I'd like to share with you is a service I'm providing to help people record their oral history. A lot of people think about recording a family member's life story, but sadly, never do. I believe that everyone has stories worth preserving and wisdoms to share. This is an easy way to create a high-quality and comprehensive audio memoir for your family and future generations to cherish. The process begins with preliminary interviews to become acquainted with you and your stories. Next, using professional recording equipment comes the recording phase. Then, using creative editing techniques, I create a polished finished product to bring out the best of you and your stories. The final recording is all in your own voice and is an amazing opportunity for your descendants to get a true understanding of who you are, but also functions as a set of footprints for a family to follow. The lessons you've learned along the way, your personal reflections, life experiences, and family history. These recordings can be as long as you would like, and I'm here to help. So to find out more, please email me at myaudiomemoir at outlook.com. That's all one word, myaudiomemoir at outlook.com. 
If you have any questions for me about this, I'd be more than happy to answer them. So thank you for listening to that. And now a little bit of music, and then my interview with Deb Morrison. Thanks so much for coming to the podcast and doing this with me. Yeah, so great to be here. Yeah, definitely. So you and I are here together on a Wednesday afternoon in the middle of February on a pretty cold day. And how has your day been so far? It's been a busy day. Got up early. It's been a busy week, actually. I uh, have had a good day, though. Very good day. Okay. Just snuggled into the house working at home. I love working at home. Lovely. So it was mainly uh, indoors today. Indoors all day today. Okay. A lot of travel coming up in the next six weeks, so indoors snuggled in today. All right. Well, I'm glad you uh, came here today, and we'll start off with the first question that we always do on this podcast, and that is, what brought you to Pender Island? What brought me to Pender Island? I love the Gulf Islands, but I have to say Pender Island specifically, it's probably disc golf. It's probably the fact that when we were looking to come back to Canada. We've been living in the U.S. for 16 years, and I'm from the sort of Salish Sea region. When we were coming back here, we really wanted to come into the islands specifically because they are between a lot of places that I work and um, university collaborations I have and airports if I need to travel so that they're convenient in that way. But they're so beautiful, and the communities, you know, all across the islands are just rural and unique and I wanted that for my children I wanted them to be raised in that kind of space that I grew up in and to really connect back with that in a in a deep and everyday kind of way so I'm really was so happy to be here but Pender specifically it was because it was far enough away not to be city and uh, close enough that I could still get to an airport for travel and logistics and from my, my life partner, Graham Garlic, from his perspective, it had good disc golf. Okay. All right. So it was your uh, your partner, Graham, that uh, had the yeah. disc golf. Uh, he what? trumped other islands. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's really interesting to hear. That's the main reason. Yeah. And uh, and it hasn't disappointed the uh, good disc golf. No. And I, I mean, I have to say, too, that our very close ro- friend, Rob Zook, was here. And he had been over on Salt Spring, but he had already moved over here. So that was a huge draw for us, too, because, you know, he's been a lifelong friend for Graham and for me for a long time. So it was really great okay. to have him here. And what year did you move here? Um, we bought property here in 2010, and then we were here in 2011 for the whole year because of family loss and a number of different kinds of issues. Um, Graham lost both his parents in 2011. And so we wanted to be here. We knew it was happening, so we came to um, stay built our little cabin um, originally, and then uh, enrolled the kids in school, so just committed to being here for the whole year. And then we were up here every summer until 2016, and then we, from 2016 on, we're here permanently. So I, we would have been here earlier, but I like was dragging my feet on finishing my last degree, so I was stuck in where I was to finish it. Your last degree? Yeah. 
Okay. Well, how many of them do you have? Three. Three degrees. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a very balanced number. Three. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Little... Everything comes in threes. That's good, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. A little tripod of uh, yeah. of degrees. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to do is uh, I wanted to uh, go back and kind of start at the beginning a little bit with this interview and go in a little bit of a chronological order here, which uh, we talked about before the interview. So I know that through speaking with you before that uh, you grew up in uh, Gibsons, BC, and I think we'll uh, we'll jump back to that part of your life, which I think is really interesting. So maybe if you could share with myself and listeners uh, what uh, your early childhood was like. Oh, I had the best early childhood, which is why I wanted my kids raised here in the islands. So I grew up on a, a acreage out that was backed by Crown Land up above Gibson's, outside the town of Gibson's. And this is, you know, 52 years ago. And uh, so like just that idea that you're kind of a wild thing in the forest was my childhood. Um, you know, come back at dark, out with the dogs and my brother, and uh, just roamed around in the bush a lot of the time. And as a very young child, I remember my dad used to take me for walks up into the hills to walk the water line because we had gravity-fed water uh, in a cistern. And, you know, every year we'd walk it multiple times a year to check it because the bears would bite it. And so we'd go up and walk it and fix and repair. And that's how I learned to really love the environment was actually just walking, doing practical things with my dad. And um, so... Yeah, he was a jack of all trades. He grew up in Desolation Sound um, and then Nongambier. So, yeah, just a really outdoorsy youth, you know, and involved in all sorts of aspects of, I don't know, just boats like dogfish derbies and, uh, you know, fishing and hiking. Not hiking like I do now. Hiking now is like, feels more yuppie-ish somehow. But <laughs> hiking there was like, practical and, and intentional, right? Like you're going to do this task. And so you go hike in to go do it. And so, um, yeah, we did a lot of things like that, going uh, sledding and stuff, up logging roads. And, you know, the neighborhood would go up to some area, you know, use um, trucks with little grater blades on it to pile snow. And then we would um, sled down the logging roads and there wouldn't really be a good safe place to stop. So they build a like berm that you'd stopped on right? So we create these little like awesome spots in the winter. So lots of stuff like that. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, can you describe a little bit of what that community looked like back then? It was really different than what Gibson's looks like now. So, um, and my mom and my dad both grew up in that community, like for their school years, most of the school years for my dad, all of them for my mom. And um, so my family had been in that community for a long time. Um, and so it was just this network of relationships, right? So you know the history of the place in a lot of different ways because so-and-so did this there 30 years ago or you're dating so-and-so, oh, he's so-and-so's, you know, I went to school with his dad and, you know, so that kind of connection. And I love that actually. Like it can be very small and constraining because everybody knows your business. But I found it very comforting because there was always somebody to turn to and lean on. And we lived right at the very end of a road up the hill, you know, and it was it was a fair walk down to the next closest neighbor. But, you know, you could go to them for anything if there was any problem. And people just looked out for each other. And I, I really valued that and think that that's kind of, for me, it's a ground floor value in who I am, that community is critical and important. 
to us and uh, that we actually put community values over individual. And that's not always popular today, but uh, it's something that was kind of just, it wasn't ground into me in terms of morals that my family passed on. It was just all around me. I was like seeped in it. And so I learned all sorts of cool things like how to can, you know, that that pig would be my bacon in the freezer (laughs) and that I should respect that pig, (laughs) you know. And so a lot of different things like growing up and just kind of rural farming, forestry, fishing. My my godfather's a fisherman, small boat fisherman. And so, you know, went out with him on boats and just learned a lot about self-reliance and, you know, having lots of different skills in the world so you could, you know, be useful in community too. And, uh, yeah, always the question I got asked by my father in particular was, uh, what do you do or what do you make in the world? Right. So like, what's, what's your thing in the world? So it's always something that's grounded my academic pursuits because people think of academic as off there in the white tower, but every day of my life, I've had my father in my head going, so what is it that you will produce in the world? (laughs) So that, that always makes me kind of think about what I'm giving back into community. Yeah, that's interesting. So was that a phrase that he used quite often with you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially when I started university. He he kind of was like, I don't understand why, you, why you're going to university, which is kind of the opposite of many people today, you know. But um, he, he always wanted to just understand. And he, I don't think he was critical necessarily. I think he was just, what's the value? You're going off to spend a bunch of money on university what's the value in doing that and all that time and energy that you're putting into it? Like, why? Why would you do that? He was a deeply thoughtful person and well-read beyond belief. Like, I've debated science concepts with him up and down all my whole life. But he didn't go to university. You know, he learned it just in the everyday. Um, And reading, like a voracious reader. So, yeah. So I think it's important question to be able to answer, actually. Like, what's the value of any particular activity you're doing and why are you really doing it? It's, I think he made me really intentional with the things I do, like to be really, you know, just thoughtful in how I spend my time and why I do what I do. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's great. That's yeah. fantastic. And yeah. just to give some context and understanding about your father, what, what did he do in the world? What was <laughs> like the things that, uh, that made him tick? Yeah. Yeah. He was, he, um, it was a tugboat captain. His family owned a wet log sort on Gambier Island. And before that, uh, multiple logging operations up in Desolation Sound and um, for a couple generations back. And um, so he worked on the dozer boats originally when he was like in his teens and then the tugboats. Uh, and then he became a coastal freighter captain for Coast Ferries, um, not BC Ferries, Coast Ferries. Um, although Coast Ferries sold some of their lines to BC Ferries. Um, so some of the, the routes in the, the Gulf Islands, they were my uncle's company originally. Um, he ran Coast Ferries. And then when I was 16, I helped him study for his BC pilotage exam. So he was a marine pilot um, navigating deep sea ships in BC waters. So and that was fun. I, I learned a ton of, so I knew how to navigate from a very young age and all sorts of boat safety and stuff. Boats just seemed very intuitive to me <laughs> most of my life because my dad. Wow. So he went from the water to the air. Uh, no, not that kind of pilot. Marine pilot. It's like boats. So oh. navigating boats. It's called a marine pilot. It's oh. super confusing. Yeah. So he actually guided like deep sea vessels in BC waters. 
Okay. And that's called a marine pilot. Aha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, so he, he stayed on the water the whole yep. time. He spent yeah. a lot of time on the water. A lot of time on the water. And he always worked shift work. So he, when he was a tugboat captain and coast freighter captain, he was two weeks on, two weeks off. So he'd be around completely and then not there at all. So I have lots of memories of my dad because, like, he was fully attentive every time he was around, you know. And then when he wasn't around, I didn't really notice. I was just in school or, you know, other things. So, yeah. Amazing. You mentioned as well, too, in a previous conversation, the importance of your grandmother in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I want to dig into this a little bit and uh, get to hear these uh, stories and a few more about uh, your grandmother. Yeah. My grandmother. Oh, my gosh. Wilma Sim um, and Wilma Morrison originally, well, originally Wilma Ambrose. Um, Yeah, she grew up in Victoria on a strawberry farm in Strawberry Vale. And she was just a crazy, crazy, wonderful person. She was a nurse by training. She'd gone to nursing school, which in her age was pretty extensive education for her. And uh, yeah, she, I lived with her on and off when my dad was at sea. And she was raised my brother and I for a good portion of our teen years and really taught me a lot about the basics of what do you really need and what do you want? What's the difference between needs and wants? And part of it was because she had lived in logging camps so much of her life that she really thought about things as like, what is what do you have on hand and how do you reuse and and you know manage that because it's literally gonna be in your backyard. Right. So you want to think about as you bring something into the community, how are you going to use it? Where is it going to go? Um, And she was an incredible gardener, like vegetable gardeners. And, you know, because she loved fresh food. And so she learned how to grow it. Right. And so she was just an incredible gardener. And she passed away last year, I think it was now. Year and a half ago now. And uh, she was 100. So and she was driving until she was 98 and gardening until she was 98. And she lived in her house right up until she was 100. Wow. And so so alone in her own house. So I was just, I'm like, I want to be my grandma. So when I hit 50, I was like, halfway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, but she's been an enormous influence on me just thinking, I mean, she taught my dad his pragmatic kind of, you know, look at the world. And me too, you know, being responsible to community, being responsible to ensure you're not overusing and and being wasteful, you know. And I think the other thing I would say about her is um, she taught me a lot about how to be kind and strong at the same time, like that you can be, you know, she was a a huge volunteer in her community um, in the last like 40 years of her life because she had so much time. (laughs) And she was just this incredible volunteer. But she was very firm about her time, like that she did these particular things and she had them scheduled because she wanted to have time for family and she wanted to have time for the rest. So she was this incredible time management person. Um, But she did a lot in her community as a result of like being able to manage all these different things. And then just the way that she set those boundaries was like very firm, but always wanting to do more, but still very firm about the, you know, so I thought that was really cool. 
So, yeah. Well, yeah. What kind of things was she doing in the community? Because I'm, I'm trying to get a little bit of a, a picture here of what uh, the town looked like size yeah. wise yeah. and the kind of person yeah. that was living there. And like, it, was there a community hall? Oh, so that's an interesting thing. So she, so she moved in when my dad was like 20, maybe 21. So what would that be? 1970, maybe? She, yeah, so around 1970, she moved into Gibson's from Gambier. And uh, just before that, so sometimes in the 60s, her and my grandfather, my blood grandfather, um, she was widowed in the 60s, but before he passed away, they had bought a huge piece of land in Gibson's up by Roberts Creek um, and with a, a consortium of different people in the community. So my grandfather logged it and built a golf course for the community. So it has a huge community hall and golf course. And they donated the land. Um, they bought the land with these others. And, uh, yeah, so they were, that was the kind of people they were, <laughs> you know. That man was a local hero. Yeah, he built a they golf were course. really well known okay. in the community because of that. My grandmother in particular, because she golfed her whole life. She stopped golfing, I think, when she was like 92 or 93. Because she didn't want to drive the golf course or the golf cart. She wanted to be able to walk. Wow. And she started to find it hard to walk around the course, <laughs> you know. And, um. But so, yeah, so that's kind of like who they were in the space. She also did in her volunteer work, she worked with the Cancer Society at the hospital. Um, they had all different kinds of activities they did to raise money and to build dressings that they needed for the cancer ward. Um, and then she was also involved with the Order of the Eastern Star, which is a Masonic group. Um, my family are Masons. Um, so can't tell you all about that <laughs> so, but uh yeah so my brother's part of the masonic hall and my grandfather and my father we're all part of it so yeah okay so yeah huge in the community and uh yeah it you, you know I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that uh you mentioned that your grandmother was trying to get you to understand the difference of what you want versus what mm -hmm. you need yeah. and then your dad mentioning Basically, what are you going to contribute to? Like, what are you doing in the world? And it sounds like, because you mentioned your dad repeated these messages over and over again to you and that uh, your grandmother probably did as well, too, about what you want, what you need, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it's amazing. It's amazing, like, how, like, uh, such, like, simple concepts or basic concepts, maybe, however you want to describe it, really actually do need that repetition for them to sink in for us, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And at key moments, you know, like when you think you're so full of yourself and you come back from university the first couple of years, you're like, I know everything, right? And especially after that first year, I was like, I think the, the more educated I become, the less I understand I really know <laughs> like about the world and the more the questions I have about the world. But that first year, man, I knew everything. I had it all dialed in. I knew what we needed to do in the world and everything. And both my grandmother and my grandfather took me down a notch. Like, you know, like, whoa, like, remember that knowledge is not all in books and in universities. And, uh, you know, if you go and do that, you have lots of responsibility to come back and do something meaningful. <laughs> it's the way it was framed. And I was just like, okay, then. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, keep uh, in check. Well, let's get into uh, first year university student Deb. But before we do, what were you like as a teenager? And so what <laughs> were experiences were you having as a teenager in Gibsons? And then what made you decide that it was time to go to university? Yeah. So there's a little like period of my life from age nine to age, four, age 14 when I didn't live in Gibsons. Okay. So um, my parents divorced when I was nine. 
And so at that time, custody was always given to the woman. And my mom took, a, took me off to um, Vancouver. She couldn't handle my brother, apparently. That's her take on it. I disagree, but anyway. Um, so my brother and I were separated. And my brother stayed with my dad, and I went with my mom to Vancouver. And so for five years, I lived in Vancouver in probably nine different places and was dragged all over Kingdom Come in different, you know, living arrangements and moved schools a few times and basically had the experiences of what it's like to live in urban poverty. And so that deeply influenced me. And something that I, I've become more comfortable about sharing too about that period is I'm a survivor of child abuse from that, from that chunk of time in my life. And the the important thing for me that I took forward from that was that I'm a survivor. Like I, I, it radically changed who I was when I chose to go and live with my dad again. And so when I was 14, I just, you know, had, I was a wild and like out of control preteen teenager. Um, and although most people who experienced me in that space would have thought that I was like the perfect teenager because in schools, I always wanted to be at school. So I didn't have to be at home. And uh, so I was a straight-A student, like, winning every competition, trying to get in every club, you know. So people didn't see it. They didn't understand what was going on. And then when I – but I was just coming apart at the seams on a personal level. And uh, so when I went to live with my dad again, you know, it was scary to go and live with my dad and brother, you know, two men that I really didn't understand and know very well anymore. And considering what I was coming out of was, like, very scary. But it radically changed my life, right? And I was suddenly surrounded by this incredible family and community again that I needed and I like craved and missed. And uh, so, and my dad, like he knew from day one why I wanted to come back. And uh, he sheltered me completely, did everything he could to support me and, and, you know, my grandmother too. And so I like settled down a little bit. I wouldn't say I was not wild, but uh, I definitely settled down more. And, uh, you know, all, school was relatively easy for me, you know, like high school. But I spent a lot of time in before I went off to university, I spent a lot of time in high school, you know, with friends and at the beach with, the, you know, Canadian 2-4. <laughs> you know, like, and, uh, yeah, I'm not quite legal age, but hey. Um, and, you know, doing those kinds of things that a lot of coastal kids do. But it had a lot of supports around me not to totally go off the rails in that. And then when I was 16, we moved into Victoria because my dad got posted to Victoria when he became a pilot. So that was hard. I entered a school that was like a 1,000 people compared to my little 79-person class that I'd known since birth. You know, like that was stressful. And so, uh, yeah, moved into Victoria. And my dad, just before I left Gibson's, there was a special program that had started called, um, I don't remember what they called it there, but it was like a creative enrichment kind of program. And I was pulled out of my math class since I was like, I could do math like a breeze. So they pulled me out of my math class to put me in this program. And what it meant is they counseled my dad when I moved schools to find a school that had a similar program. And again, my dad totally stepped up, even though he didn't really he wasn't super supportive of a university trajectory. He didn't really understand why you do that. 
he listened to the counselors in the school at the time. And so when we moved to Victoria, I got to go to this school that was Belmont High School in Victoria, which is, you know, there's people here actually who I know who went to Belmont and uh, I have classmates here on the island now. Um, but anyway, I went to the program for academic and creative enrichment at Belmont and like they're the ones who opened up the idea that university was a possibility for me because um, I didn't even know anybody really. I don't think I knew anybody who went to university. So they helped me apply for universities. They showed me what, why you might want to go to university. I, um, I wasn't sure that I wanted to go to university, <laughs> but I did all the applications and everything. And um, I also applied for a number of programs, which we now refer to as a gap year. At that time, people didn't really think very much about doing that. And I got into one of them. So I went to um, uh, Canada World Youth, Jeunesse Canada Monde. I did it in French. So I went to Canada World Youth for a year before I went to university. And so I spent, um, I think, three, no, more than that, almost five months in Quebec and uh, three months in northern India. What? Yeah. Wow. It was fun <laughs> in Himachal Pradesh. And I lived and worked in community projects in both places. And uh, so it was right up my alley. Okay, so had you ever left the country before you went to India at Once. that point? Once. Okay. I'd gone to Mexico the summer before All right. um, with my dad, and that was it, the first time I'd ever left the country. Well, I think we'd been into the U.S. to go to Disney World once, but the first time I remember leaving the country was, no, so we definitely had gone to Disneyland when I was a kid. We drove down in a camper. All right. And then, but the first time I got on a plane, I was 17, and I went to Mexico with my dad um and then the second time i went to quebec and then off to india boom so, let's yeah. talk about india what <laughs> what was going on there for you like how was that experience I because loved you loved it okay what were you doing well the program itself was like 21 youth from canada and 21 youth from india and we're matched so it's called a counterpart you're you paired with another person and then in each community there's three communities in each community in Quebec, and then later in each community, three communities in India, we do a service project of some kind. In Quebec, we actually were dispersed under different kinds of projects. In India, we did all one together. And so there's a group of you, and you kind of learn together, like in each community. So um, my counterpart and I were part of seven pairs of counterparts that lived and worked in Val d'Or, Quebec. And then in, um, I can't remember the name of the town. I was just thinking about it the other day. But it was um, a town in, in northern India. Um, and so we built a school building in northern India out of brick. I learned how to lay brick. It was kind of cool. And just we learned about the region and worked with different service organizations to, like, do different smaller projects here and there. It was very cold. We were there over the winter. But it was breathtakingly beautiful. It was all mountainous. It's like going to Nepal, like what you think of Nepal. That's what it was like. And then it's where the... I think it's the same state um, as where the Dalai Lama is. And so, yeah, up in that area. So beautiful mountains. and But I really, I think India especially really taught me, although I would say Valdor too, because Valdor is way out there. It's the northern mining region in Quebec. And um, so both places kind of taught me similar kinds of things. Valdor was more about community again and about like the nature of resource-based communities. Even though I'd grown up in one, I didn't really think about it until I was in Valdor because Valdor is a mining town and like everybody was really dependent on like mining and timber. 
And it's so far away from everything else that everybody's really dependent on the companies, right? And so that just creates a certain dynamic in the community that's kind of stressful for everybody, you know? And then the First Nations in the area, which were the Cree, are like, you know, there's a resurgency at the time I was there. And so people were really trying to manage and understand what reconciliation would look like. They didn't even have that word, but at the time, just really rethinking relationships with Indigenous people. So that was that was a super cool place to be. But India was like the opposite in some ways. You look at India and it's just like everywhere you go, there's a person. You can be like hiking in the middle of nowhere and people will just walk out of like the random there. And you're just like, wow, this country is really full, right? And then you see it when you go to the big cities like Delhi and like other places. But to me, it was more noticeable in the like out there places, right? Like there's remote places because you couldn't really get to a place where there was no human imprint, like on the land or just people, right? And that that really made me want to understand like how are we actually moving across the earth? So it actually made me decide what I wanted to study. Okay, well, that was going to be my question is like, yeah. what, how do these experiences inform you into yeah. what you wanted to do in school? But I think that's really amazing to recognize the fact that you're in a country that's very far away and you're in isolated situations and then you're always running into somebody. <laughs> so crazy. Yeah, yeah but yeah. That, that actually incentivized you to pursue a path in school. Yeah, okay. I, I studied geography. So I, I had thought that I would go and study sciences or math because I excelled in that in school. I always thought I'd study chemistry straight up, <laughs> right? But uh, I actually turned the corner and, and decided I would study geography. So I still d did a science degree in geography, but I really wanted to understand humans and how humans are moving around on the planet and using resources and understanding resources better. So my undergraduate is in resource management, and specifically I studied my own hometown I studied coastal zone management. So to try and understand, like, what is it we're doing here when we, like, this in land-sea interface? And and I studied the Port Mellon pulp and paper mill. So, like, how does forestry feed into it? How does it, like, expel into the water? Like, what is its environmental footprint? And uh, how could it be different? How could we still have that mill, but it be radically different, right? And so, um, yeah, so I studied that. And it was kind of cool because they had just been going through a big uh, refit uh, on the mill. Um, and so all these different processes that the technology had been there for a long time, but they just implemented it. And I got to study it from both a social and a cultural and a, you know, timber management and a water resource management and a chemistry kind of perspective. So, yeah, it was an awesome project. So, you know, a lot of people go into their first year of university or maybe first couple of years and they decide this actually isn't what I want to do. It's mm -hmm. not what I thought it was going to be. What was your experience? It sounds like it really uh, sang to you. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. There were definitely aspects like I thought I would be more interested, for instance, in some of the politics, which is ironic now, actually, but in some of the um, political science kind of pieces, because I had done... Um, some stuff in, when I was a teenager, I guess when I was like 16, 17, I was involved in some of the anti-war rallies or anti-nuclear rallies because in I think the year I graduated or the year after I graduated is when the Berlin Wall came down. And But I was very involved in those last few years before the Berlin Wall came down in anti-nuclear weapon demonstrations. Because of my like activism as a youth, I was really interested in political science as a topic. I didn't really know what it was 
But I was, I thought, ooh, that's that thing. It sounds cool. Yeah. Political so science. Even, even though I was a super science and math geek, I really wanted to take these political science courses. And I took, I think, one. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not interested in this. And it's not that I wasn't interested in the human nature and, and behavior and stuff like that. I just didn't like the political history because I actually found, I found it to be very manipulative. I found it to be like not something that I felt ethically interested in. And so I was much more drawn to science because I just loved the creativity and the sort of knowledge of the world and then how we use that in geography, right? So how have we actually, in different cultures and societies across the world, decided how we're going to do what we're going to do and, and what's the ramification, right, of all that? So, yeah, I found that fascinating. It's like this giant socio-ecological puzzle, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's literally my life. That's it. The socio-ecological puzzle, right? Okay, yeah, so yeah. bouncing back to you finished yeah. your first year at university, you go back home to Gibson's, and then I imagine that you're seeing the town in a little bit of a different light through what you've learned, but then you're having conversations with your grandma and yeah. your dad, and they're like, hold on a second here, right? So what were you able to learn from their perspective that you brought back from your perspective that you learned at school in terms of okay like this is this is how i see the world now grandma and dad and and then they would probably debate you on things what did you wind up learning from those conversations yeah two different kinds of things so like my grandmother for instance um when i would go back and talk with her i remember the very first time i got into a long conversation on some aspect of like environmental sustainability kind of stuff with her and she listened she was so lovely she listened and she was like excited because i was excited okay and then after the whole thing, and we were making bread. We, that's the thing my grandma and I did together. We made bread. And we were making bread. So this long, drawn-out process of like, you know, we'd make like 18 loaves of bread at once kind of thing, like for the freezer. And like, so we're making bread. Anyway, I'm explaining. I'm talking the whole time, tell, uh, telling all these things I've learned. And after all of it, she's like, wow, dear, that's like so great, all these things you're learning everything. But it seems like a lot of it's quite common sense. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like... I was so taken down a notch. And I was like, what do you mean? And so then she basically said back to me in like short statements of like, well, all that stuff you were talking about, that's about don't waste. You know, all this stuff you're talking about, that's about, you know, respect the local environment and live within your constraints. And I was just like, oh, so, like, I think the biggest lesson my grandmother ever taught me, and she taught it to me many, many times, was humility right? and communications, right? Like how you say things in simpler, clearer ways and how you don't assume that because somebody doesn't have your level of education or your job title or whatever, that they don't have knowledge, right? And they can't get into the conversation with you. Everyone can get into the conversation. It's just about how we speak it into the world, right? So my dad, on the other hand, was funny because he would, you know, argue all sorts of things with me because he was fascinated by it. And I think he learned just as much in my degree as I did just by interrogating me about everything I learned. But I think one of the biggest lessons I learned from him was probably around being clear about why I think Indigenous rights are important. because. 
I think he understands that and is clear himself on that. But one of the biggest questions he would ask me when I would talk about Indigenous rights or some of the sort of aspects of colonization and like the things I was learning around that, resource management related to it, was his question was like, well, when is it that when we migrate across the world, we now have a right to be where we are? When does that change? Because I learned, I'm Scottish ancestry. So my family, my Morrison side of my family is all from the Hebridean area. So the outer Hebrides in Northern Scotland. And those islands were colonized by the English again and again, and in vicious ways. And so like a lot of my family history is about the Scottish expulsions and how we were exiled out of Scotland. Um, and so those histories of oppression in different places in the world travel with people as they are migrating, either forcibly or intentionally, right? And so what does that mean when you migrate from one place intentionally or unintentionally and you're in another place? When do you just become of that place, right? And so he would always ask me about that. And I'm like, those are really good questions because we're struggling with them as people here, right? Like, when do people who are settler colonial people become just people of this place, right? And how do we become into this place with the people who were here before us, right? And so those are questions that I still don't know if I have <laughs> solid answers for, but they're things I always think about. And like, as, as we start to work through all the things we have to do in our daily lives here and be respectful of the histories of this place, I think it, it's always something I wonder about. Yeah, it sounds, it's incredible, actually, just yeah. as you were speaking about that, my head was spinning yeah. trying to answer that question. I was I like, I don't know. That's a really complicated <laughs> question. I know. Yeah. I know. But, and it, it can sound terrible in some ways, right? Because it can sound like, when do I become native, right? And that's, that sounds like a racist question, right? But the intention behind it is more about like, when is it that migrations of people across history makes them part of that new place, right? Because the Hebridean Scots, you know, were the first peoples of that place. They were the Picts originally, right? But when did the English who like married into the Hebridean Scots become Scots too, right? And like, you know, the answer for that one, by the way, is never. An Englishman <laughs> never becomes a Scot. So, but yeah. 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 Well, a, a micro and less intense version of that question is when does somebody who moved to Pender Island become a go. Penderite? That's right. That's and another one. Like it's that. a contentious question. Yeah. And, yeah. and a lot of people have a lot of different uh, timelines and answers for that question, right. right? And depending on how I string that timeline, you know, nobody who's not Indigenous is, is a Penderite, right? Hmm. And and yet I could change the the time frame and say, okay, only if you have multi generational uh, ancestors here are you a Penderite, or we could change it again and say, okay, you're a Penderite after you've lived here for like ten years, right? Mm -hmm. And just get so yeah, or after you've like been through an election cycle, <laughs> 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 right? So yeah, you know. But I think at the core of it is that we all want to feel a sense of home mm -hmm. and we all want to feel mm -hmm. a sense of belonging. And that yeah. if that seems to be absent from our experience or we're not allowed to feel that way, yeah. then I think that that can lead to, um, yeah, just a feeling of loss or yeah. something negative. And, uh, and I, I think we all deserve an opportunity to feel a sense of uh, belonging and that we have a home. You know, I would frame it as 
When I feel a sense of belonging to a place, I also feel a sense of responsibility to it. And so as soon as I feel that sense of responsibility to a place, then I'm going to care for that place more than if I didn't feel that sense of responsibility. Mm. And then I think I'm home, right? Because there have been places I've lived where they are not home to me, even though I might have lived there for a long time, like Boulder. I lived in Boulder, Colorado for, well, Boulder, I think I lived there for about 10 years. And uh, while it's beautiful and I had lots of relationships there and connections to place, it was never home. You know, my home has always been here in this area. And so, um, you know, trying to understand where we feel most rooted in our identity and in our responsibility. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating stuff, actually, like the idea of somebody being able to identify the fact that I feel responsible for a place and Mm -hmm. and to have that uh, tangible sense within themselves. Uh, is, is, is it probably a wonderful feeling to experience? Like, mm-hmm. I, I know I feel that way. Right. And, yeah. uh, it makes a lot of sense what you were saying about not feeling that. How long were you living in Boulder for, by the way? We were in Colorado for 16 years, but we were down in Westminster originally because it was so Graham could cycle to work. Okay. Um, I think we were in Westminster for like, for about five years. And then just after Marina was born, we moved up to Boulder. So Seth was born when we were up in Boulder. Okay. So, yeah. But yeah. but yeah, from what you're saying, you can live in an area for a significant period of time and still not feel a sense of responsibility for yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Neat. Okay, so getting back to uh, the university days, as the <laughs> uh, the years are going by in university and you collect your first degree, uh, what do you decide to do after that? Yeah, and and I did a co-op degree, so I got to see so much of the country. I went up to the Yukon, was in Bella Coola, and like. I took most of my work terms out in some remote place. So I got to see just beautiful country. So after I finished university, I had been working for the last two years of my degree full time um, and going to school like 30 or 60 percent of the time. So I was multitasking in a pretty ferocious way. And I was working for the Ministry of Aboriginal Affairs in the province and uh, some other name now, but that's what it was at the time. And so I, I worked there for about two years, I think. And then um, I'd saved up all my money because I was still living like a student. Uh, I put myself through school. And and then um, so I wanted to go traveling. So I had this great plan. I was going to go to Turkey. Um, and I was just going to go by myself. So I thought Turkey was reasonably safe. I could do it. I could manage it. I really wanted to go further east, but I wasn't sure I could travel by myself, you know. Um and so I decided I, there's some beautiful, like, landscape features and, like, salt baths and different kinds of things in Turkey. And I really wanted to go there. And Greece and through the Mediterranean area. So I kind of had researched it all and got all, you know, organized. And then um, – and I'd known Graham, my life partner. I've kno- I'd known him for a couple years at the time. But I'd been dating somebody else when I met Graham. That's actually how I met Graham. It's my ex-boyfriend introduced me. So – I had moved out from my ex-boyfriend was living on my own and Graham was going off to do some disc golf thing. I think actually it might've been croquet. I'm not sure. Anyway. <laughs> Wait, is that croquet I, or disc golfing? Yeah. He said he was actually at the, at some time in my, our married life, he was uh, the Canadian croquet champion too. What a champion? I know. I know. It's this is news to me. I, I did not There's know a whole this. Bunch of, you, you're going to need to do a podcast just on Graham. Yeah, for sure. Um, So he was going down to Arizona for some road trip and asked me for something. And so then we, we started realizing, hey, wait, we're both single. <laughs> we really like each other. So we started dating, but I was already planning to leave. 
And I, like about six months out, I was kind of working out various things. And we started dating and I'm like, oh, I'm not sure I really want to be dating right now because I'm like going to go traveling for some undetermined period of time. Like I wasn't planning on coming back directly. I was just going to wander, right? So, um, yeah. So he was like, well, do you want somebody to travel with you? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to like work it out like that we can travel together and I don't want to really be beholden to somebody else, you know? Oh, I'm open-minded, whatever. So we started talking about it and eventually I decided, yeah, we could do that. And then he was like, well, are you, have your heart set on Turkey or do you want to go somewhere like else? And he's like, I've always wanted to go to Nepal. I'm like, hell yeah, let's go to Nepal. So we went, um, we planned a like round the Pacific kind of ticket and it was supposed to go like Nepal, India, and then Indonesia, I think, and back. So we got to Nepal and spent a couple months hiking. Oh my God, what a beautiful country. And the Buddhists, mostly in the mountains. So we're mostly surrounded by Buddhists. It was so wonderful. And then and eventually we wandered down through India, spent like three months in India, traveling across India, just really randomly, no plan. Just like, oh, we get to this town. That looks cool. Let's go that way. <laughs> and so it was, it was really a good experience to not be tied to a calendar or any kind of agenda. And then we moved things around so we could travel more overland and not have to fly and uh, ended up going to see his brother in Thailand for a month or so, maybe two months. Uh, never got to Indonesia, never made it there. Uh, and then he came back and started his degree and I didn't want to go. So I went to see my ex-boyfriend in <laughs> England and went to the Hebrides, spent a couple months there and then came back. And then eventually I started working for a consulting firm uh, called Sterling Wood Group and doing resource management work. Um, so I worked with a whole group of foresters, but I was the only non-forester at the time. Um, and I did resource management of all the other values because the new Forest Act had been put into place mm -hmm. and they needed somebody to kind of think outside the tree with dollar value written on it and understand that. So that's the work I did. So at this point in your life, what are you thinking about how you want to contribute to the world? Because you're, you're finished school, you go on this yep. large trip that uh, various places around the world having different experiences that change us for sure, yeah, right? These trips are sure. profound when we're young having these experiences. Yeah. But what is it that you're thinking, okay, this is what I want to want to be able <laughs> to do and accomplish in my life at that time? Do you remember? Yeah, it does change as I move through my life. But at that point, I think the biggest thing I was I wanted to understand is I really wanted to understand why we manage our forests the way we do and why what how did you come to that uh, conclusion? I grew up in like a forest community forest dependent community like from the pulp mill and you know we were and and going through university you know you get caught up in universities where there's all this like environmentalism that goes on in those spaces often and I'd heard a lot of people like, oh, we can't cut a single tree, we can't do this and we can't do that. And that caused me a lot of tension because I'm from a logging family and I lived in a resource-driven community, right? And I knew it's not that simple, like to just say you can't do this at all. And I've seen good forest management, like I've seen it done well, not generally by multinational corporations, <laughs> but I've seen it done well in small business programs and like, you know just smaller local run and held operations and it's funny because it's the thing about like if you're responsible to the place you generally do things better and so um yeah so i i basically wanted to understand if we could really do that right 
like how do consultants and you know people who are working with some of these bigger companies how do they actually get into the work with those people and and help them see like what could be done in a in a particular area so my job was actually really challenging it was really difficult to try and work with a you know foresters who were <laughs> my dad's age in some situations you know and were really entrenched in a particular way of doing things and to be the person that basically could say no I don't sign off on that and I was like what 24 right and so that was a super difficult position to be put in but it was also it was kind of empowering because I did understand those other resource components. And I just had to figure out, I never wanted to get to the point where I'm like, no, I'm not signing off on that. I always wanted to try and proceed that by like five other steps of like, let me just explain what recreation value is. (laughs) Or like, let, I mean, do you like going camping? Well, like, let's consider this. Or have you thought about like water retention? Like, and, and so like, I did a lot of education kinds of work with my colleagues to try and help so I wasn't always in a confrontation situation, right? Because we were we were collaborators. We're trying to figure out how to work out the new forest act together, right? And so I just, I was really interested in how we find common ground, right? To be, to find a different way forward that is more sustainable. Because all I could see from all of the education I had, and frankly, from my life of like where I grew up and what I was seeing and the changes over over the time I grew up in that community, is how do we actually achieve sustainability, not just some false myth that's putting it off for another 10 years or another 10 years or another 10 years, you know? And that's probably my guiding question through my entire career, is how do we actually get closer to to being and living in a sustainable way? as opposed to just constantly overusing and we're basically boring from tomorrow, right? And uh, how do we understand that we're even boring from tomorrow? It doesn't feel like that in the everyday choices we make. So how do we even understand that? Well, yeah, and how, how do we understand that? Because I was, I was actually reading a book yeah. yesterday, last night, about um, how important uh, Boggs and mm-hmm. peat is. And the woman who wrote the book was talking about growing up in 1935 in the east coast of the United States and just spending time in nature and allowing that space and time to give her an opportunity to have a connection with nature going back day after day and just being in in recognition of the slow rhythm of nature and then appreciating it because she was in connection with it. And I thought that it was really profound. And uh, I've had an opportunity in my life to spend long periods of time in a forest by myself with not much else to do than look at the (laughs) forest. I worked in a fire lookout tower for years. And that really, really helped me have a deeper appreciation of nature but I'm wondering, what do you think is a way for people to be able to have an inroad into understanding how we're extracting resources and a better way to do it? I actually think it's what you're saying. I, I think we need to be in nature and have a connection, a relationship with it is how I think about it. And so, you know, when I was 30, I shift, made a big shift from working in sort of forest ecology resource management sector to um, learning. And part of the reason I did that is because I realized that. So that 
like scientists, people out who are at the fringe fields of collecting information in different ways and finding new things, they can know the greatest and most wonderful things. But if we don't also feel it and understand it deeply in our soul, we're never going to to care. So being able to change the way that we are as humans individually and as societies is about, um, Donna Haraway calls it staying with the trouble, right? So we have to stay with the tension of the things we don't really want to choose to do, but we kind of know we need to choose to do because something's motivating us deep internally. And that's some kind of care or connection, right? And so I feel connected with nature too, because I spent my childhood walking in the forest, right? Being out on boats. And I wanted my children to feel that too. So I made sure that they did those things with me. Even when we were in Colorado, we, we spent so much time in the backcountry skiing and hiking with them because we want them to see that nature has deep personal value. And I have also had the opposite experiences where I, you know, as a child was in cities surrounded by nothing that looked natural, really. And I've worked with kids on and, and teachers all across the world who are living in these crowded, condensed urban environments. And there's a disconnect that's happened. People have written about it. You know, Last Child in the Woods is a book about that nature deficit disorder, right? And that if we don't care about nature, that we lose a connection with our basic system of survival. That if we don't have a connection with nature as humans, then we don't care. And then we really don't care. We will become like overusers and we see it all around us, right? And so what we have to do is we actually have to reestablish that connection for people who have lost it. And we ourselves have to maintain it. So we actually need natural spaces and we need to be outside in the world. And we need, even in the middle of cities, need to cultivate natural spaces and relationships with plants and ecosystems. And people are really starting to realize that all across the world. And so you're seeing like green city movements and more park protections even and development in cities. In some places, they're actually taking, you know, vacant lots and developing them into, you know, gardens and natural spaces, green spaces. And part of that is not just beautification of cities. It's to connect. It's to bring children in and community members in so we remember that this is actually the air we breathe is dependent on things that grow, right? And so that we are connected with that system. So, and I can reduce it down into biochemical processes and all that kind of stuff. That's fascinating to me too. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, it's about understanding that it's a system of survival that we have and that we rely on. And we also have to live in the economic and social systems of humans too. But they are to some degree secondary to the systems of nature. Because frankly, if humans screw it up bad enough, nature will still go on. And uh, some of humanity too. I don't want to see that future. I think we are rational enough and, and intelligent enough that we can find a different way forward, a way that's really we're part of. And so it's kind of funny because I've heard arguments about people are like, oh, you put, you know, the environment over humans. And I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't be talking to humans if I did that. <laughs> so, I wouldn't spend my professional life working with humans if that's really how I thought, mm -hmm. because nature wins hands down in, in all ways in this particular fight, you know, um, because she has the long term game. Right. 
So it's about how we want to be part of that future. So many possible directions to go here <laughs> for sure. And, and, but the one I, I want to go with is like that, uh, the importance that you had in sharing that with your children, Yeah, yeah. because it's one thing to talk about how important nature is or to yeah. flip through a book, but it doesn't really, uh, have the same impact as going out and doing the work and spending time in nature mm-hmm. and feeling that sense of wonder and awe and discomfort and mm-hmm. beauty and all those wonderful things. Yeah. You know, I, I said this recently, like, I can't remember the last time I went for a walk and regretted it. I know, right? <laughs> and it's so funny because like now I find it so difficult with the way my life is to find that, especially since COVID, like my professional life just has gone chaotic since COVID. But, you know, all through the years of raising my children, people would ask us like, how do you manage to go camping so much or to hike or to like, how can you take a baby out backpacking, right? How do you functionally do that, right? And uh, in my head, it was the opposite way around. How would I not do this? Because this is so much part of my life that I have to figure out how to bring my child into it because it's part of my life, right? And what I value. And so I just have to figure it out, right? And like we literally, I remember one of the first camping episodes, we did a car camping, which is very not us, but we did this car camping thing where we walked in like, half a mile kind of into this tent site but it was like not very far and we thought we'd do it so I was I think Marina was six months old yeah it was in summer so Marina was six months old I wasn't yet pregnant with Seth and we back we just had backpack type stuff walked across this like half mile thing set up the tent and camped for like a day with Marina just to try it out to see what it was like it was the best thing ever. And we're like, forget that. Leave the car behind next time. <laughs> right? And so, and we just took a little change pad pillow, you know, like we just tied it onto the back of our backpack, you know, the curved pillows. And she slept on that in between us in the tent. And it was perfect, you know, ready-made port crib <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and way easier to carry. And um, so we always just figured it out, like wherever we were and whatever we were doing. And Sometimes it was difficult. Like I remember the first time I took Seth um, cross-country skiing, right? And, you know, Seth is a super athletic kid and has always been, but he's really cold because he's so skinny. And so he did not like the idea of cross-country skiing. It seemed like a lot of work and it was really cold and you were going in a loop as far as he could tell, right? Why would you do this, right? So, you know, we talked Pokemon, the whole way because he was into Pokemon cards. So we talked Pokemon and he just skied along like, and then we'd sit and chill and we'd have hot chocolate and like, you know, treats that he'd never get normally, you know, like actual chocolate or whatever. And so he just thought it was the best thing ever. And so the kids always had this super positive kind of mentality with any of that kind of stuff. And then they started seeing it too. Like we would go someplace and because it was so normed when they were very little, it seemed like it was this big job sometimes to them. But then we'd get someplace and they would just be like, wow, this is beautiful. And you're like, right? Just sit with that feeling. Like, remember that feeling, you know? And like the awe of nature around you, you know? And pointing it out, being like, when you're sitting there drinking hot chocolate in the middle of the snow, off the path away from the rest of the people, you know, who are skiing, and you're sitting there and you look around, you're like, is there any kind of ice fairies in the forest? 
you know, like, and just the magic of the world, like allowing kids to see that I think is so critical. I'm still convinced at 52 that there are mermaids in the ocean, right? Because my dad told me mermaid stories my entire childhood and not just told me stories, but that we descended from mermaids. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? So like my kids think that they're part of the fairyland, right? So. It's a beautiful way to imagine life for sure. Yeah, like right? it's it's expansive. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I love, I love the idea of the little baby steps with yeah. a baby about having like yeah. the uh, half mile in car camping experience. It was a little bit of a nervous thing, right? You got this little baby. You're like, what if they're like in the middle of the night? There's all these things to worry about. And like, so we just tried to ma- minimize that. Tried and really simple like we're gonna take one change of clothes and that's it maybe not even that maybe one change of socks and underwear (laughs) and then anything else we need for the kid goes in the party you know yeah but kids don't really need that much you can take almost nothing with you and you'll figure it out and i think this is helpful for new parents to hear as well too because we can easily talk ourselves out of anything so easy oh it's gonna be too hard oh it's gonna be too tricky i can't do this right but like usually with anything once you get going it's not as difficult as you imagine in your mind yeah Uh, and actually the the other thing about that that and you know this is graham and i co-parented very intentionally our whole life so we were like a team and one of the things that we chose early on is we really reduced gift giving in our so we give gifts but there are more gifts of service or gifts of of thought or so like we give little tickets to each other of like gifts that we give each other and only on a couple different birthdays did we give physical gifts more intentionally so with the kids very rarely if ever store-bought right so usually there's something we created ourselves and we really intentionally did that with the kids because we wanted to cut down on materialism that everything was bought and you needed something new all the time and so that had the effect that they didn't have a bunch of toys like other people's toys, like plastic and crap like that, right? And the toys were often very intentionally cooperative play toys, right? Like Legos, if they were plastic, right? Or reuse, gift, re-gifted from somebody else, right? And so it taught them a lot of things, like that the things they had, they valued, right? And that they should share them, right? Because if my kids ever got into an argument over a toy, I took it and gave it away. And that and they were told to work it out next time and that only ever happened once right <laughs> that's and, all it would take right done <laughs> done and they were warned right? <laughs> so but but as a result they never fought over toys it wasn't about mine yours it was ours right and so like it was just easier to like raise them because they weren't so focused on stuff right but so when we went camping and stuff like that it was awesome because for them there was a toy in every tree and every rock and everything right? They didn't have to go and get a toy. Toys were all around them, Mm. right? And so they literally looked at the world as one big playground, right? And so it didn't matter where we went or what we were doing. They always found toys. And like, it was crazy, some of the stuff. They had this whole like bow and arrow set worked out in like two minutes of being on Pender, right? That they had with like leftover to twine they snuck out of the shed and and like sticks they found and they, they made it all. And then they were like, forest elven warriors running around right like it was done they were gone and those those bows and arrows that they made lasted forever you know and they use them yeah so it was you know i'm hearing some uh, echoes from your grandmother here with the choices that you're making about uh <laughs> she was a huge influence yeah, yeah. we uh jumped away from a topic we were talking about where you were speaking to people about resource management and force oh, yeah. and so 
from that time to where you're at now, and I know this is a huge no, that's okay. span of time, but um, I want to talk about the work that you're invested in right now and the work that you're doing, but uh, maybe you could give me a, a little bit of a, uh, a bridge to get there about what was happening when you were 24, which you explained, and what's happening now and what happened in between. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that happened is I'd spent a bunch of time doing um, forestry consulting work, um, first with Sterling Wood Group and then with uh, Silvering Forestry up out in Nanaimo, which was, a, I think we referred to it as chicks and a hippie. It was an all-female company and one guy. Um, and so I worked all over British Columbia with them uh, doing silvicultural-type forestry work. Um, and that got me really interested in some of the research work because they had research plot stuff that they did. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And so I had an opportunity to go back to school and do another degree, which I wasn't interested in, actually, because I liked the work I was doing in, in forestry. But it was a forestry project, and it was fully funded. And I liked the project. So I wanted to work on the project. But the only way to work on the project was to do a degree. Because <laughs> right? it, it was paid for through research grants at the university. Hold on a second here. How long was this degree going to take? It was supposed to take two years. Yeah. And it would be fully funded. They pay for everything. I'd have to take some classes during the winter. Okay. But they would pay me to do do everything. All right. Well, this is making a little more sense So now. I was like, right. okay, right. I guess I could do that. And it would be two years of forestry-related research work, right? And the site was in Tennessee. So I'd get to go down and work in this research site in Tennessee with three different universities, and it was a cool collaboration. And they wanted me to run the field crews because I had experience with field crews. And so I was like, yeah, I want to do that. So I was like, okay. So I went and did that. Only the degree took me four years. <laughs> I did two years of field work and a bunch of like data analysis related to it. And then it just took me two years to finish writing it up because it was a painful process. And my advisor moved schools. So I'd gone out to Ontario and finished my degree at the University of Western Ontario. I started at UVic though. And so I did that. And while I was out in Ontario um, at that university, because I was there so long, right, I was actually only at the university for two years. And then I did the rest of it, like, remotely. But I got a chance to teach university-level classes in biology. And uh, I kind of loved it. And they always wanted me to do the lab, the practical courses, because I had field experience. And I knew a lot about population ecology and uh, different kinds of things like that and the math, which is in it. So I got to work with a guy named Herbert Kronzucker, who is now, I think he's the Canadian Research Chair in Biology, and it, it was awesome. And so he really made me think about teaching and like what is, what is learning and teaching and how do we do that? Um, and he really supported me in shifting into like a learning field because he said that I was a really good communicator with in relation to understanding complex systems. And so... I'd never really thought about that. I didn't think I knew enough to be a teacher, first of all. So when I moved to Colorado, um, Graham and I decided we were going to move to Colorado because we wanted to go rock climbing. <laughs> so um, wasn't disc golfing that time. <laughs> and so we were going down to Colorado. And uh, so I had the choice to go back into consulting or to go into education. And I applied to both because I wasn't sure if I would even, I'd have to go for a license and everything. And I didn't want to go back to school. So, but they had an alternative licensing process in Colorado to get certified while you're working. And um, so I was like, oh, I could do that. So, but I applied to both to see what I'd get accepted to. 
And I got accepted to both. So Ooh. I actually got into a consulting like firm, an offer on a consulting firm, and I got offered a licensing, alternative licensing pathway and a job. And I was like, oh, God, now I have to really decide. And so I did, a, I think, a good move. I took the half as good paying job and got my education credentials because it was definitely twice the money if I went consulting route. But I decided to go and teach. Okay, so, well, the the question, of course, is why did you choose that then? Yeah, Graham was getting paid good money. He was working in the IT industry down there. And um, I really love teaching. I love understanding, like, what goes on in somebody's mind and when does that light sort of spark about the complex realities that, like, when I look out the window and I look at the forest, I don't see a bunch of trees standing in front of me. I see an entire chemical ecosystem and the flow of it moving and the time and the history and the layers of how old that forest is and what caused it to be that age, those histories of place. And I want other people to see the world the way I do because it's so interesting. Like everywhere I look, I see that, right? And I'd experienced a little bit of that when I taught at the University of Ontario, but people were so grade-driven and not like learning-driven. And so I wasn't as interested in that. But when I got to teach in Colorado, the option I had was to teach middle school and earth science. So I got to teach this like really cool integrated thing. And I loved it. I just really wanted to try it. It was something so new and I really loved it. And so I've been working in education or learning design spaces for like 20 years, over 20 years now. And I basically teach anybody from I don't really work directly with students as much. My youngest people I work with right now are 17, 16 and 17. I'm doing a pilot project out at Pearson College um, in climate action leadership. So I'm teaching youth and all the way to like as old as you like around policymakers and leaders of corporations. Um, and so all of it's around climate change now. How do we understand systems? And mostly I teach the chemistry, like I do that kind of stuff. But I also teach like the social systems and how we understand that and justice, how justice fits into that picture. Okay. Yeah. You know what? I am sensing such a deep sense of curiosity from you through yeah. this whole flow of yeah, conversation. True. It just yeah. seems like there's this endless well of curiosity inside yeah. you. And when, when you talked about you wanted to have that light bulb moment go off in a student's eyes and be able to see that. So here's a question I have. So you were just actually looking out the window at mm -hmm. the forest that we can see from my house that we're in right now and talking about what was previously there like the interconnected systems and these aren't obvious to my eye i don't see those things mm -hmm. it's hard to see something that's not there for me how are you able to give someone an opportunity mm -hmm. to be able to see those things that aren't necessarily visible to the eye yeah it's interesting because most of the things that i specialize on are things that are not visible to the eye so the chemistry of a place or the justice issues in a place or those kind of cycling kind of issues. So there's so many answers to that question. I think if, if you take the sort of sciencey aspect of it first, like one of the things that I really try to do is I try to, I try to work with people actually on all issues. I try to work with people over long periods of time. So it's very rare that I engage with somebody around learning and only have what I call a one touch 
like method of learning. So where I like go to and I do a workshop and that's all you'll ever see of me. All my work now that I do, I have a minimum of a year collaboration with somebody. And I prefer it if it's multi-year because we don't learn in any one moment. We learn over time. The repetition thing we were talking about earlier, having those messages again and again and in different ways because I learn too. Every time I interact with somebody and they learn something from me, I learn something from them too, right? So the way that we, we learn together is I listen to how you're learning and I hear the questions you ask and then I shift how I'm trying to reach what you need from me. And I also share things with you that you might be learning from me because I'm hearing so much from you. So it sounds weird. It's like, no, no, it's like no. echo chamber, but. <laughs> it doesn't sound weird at all, but go on, go on. But I think like part of it is like, understanding that we both have things to put into the space to share and as we put them into a shared space it will change what is there to understand because so like say we were trying to understand something about climate change okay I obviously talk a lot about climate change in my life so when I say the word climate change I have a bunch of understanding about what that means and you have a bunch of understanding if you live in the media field world you've heard the word right and so I have to figure out what you already know about climate change and what you might be biased about around it because I have biases too. And so having that conversation back and forth in many different instances about different aspects of the problem help us both learn what we both understand and then it helps us understand where the things are that we don't agree on. Maybe you don't think that some of the data I have, like when we start sharing ideas about climate change, I'm a data geek, so I might get out some visualizations from the computer and share like really cool websites I know. And you dig into those and look at them and like, yeah, I don't really agree with that. And you share videos with me. My brother does this all the time. I get a lot of alt-right videos from him. And so, so, so like, but I learn a lot from that, right? And so it's like that exchange is how we learn and the ongoing conversations. Sometimes there's cool technology. Sometimes it's a walk in the forest. Um, I had a cool episode like just before COVID hit where we did a collaborative workshop with the Wasainich First Nation. And I learned so much just in planning that workshop because we brought like lawyers in our community, you know, elected officials. We brought scientists. We brought scientists from the Wasainich. We brought, you know, educators from the Wasainich in. And we all kind of learned and shared together. And we just had a central question like, what is climate change in the Gulf Islands? And we just talked around that and shared from our different perspectives. And I don't, I don't think of learning as a bunch of facts I'm going to recite on a test. Sure. Yeah. Right? Learning is about constantly growing our web of understanding related to a place that we're in. And so because of that, my definition of learning is really different <laughs> and how we do it. Right? So... You know, I can walk you through how to do school, but that's not what I'm interested in. Yeah. yeah. Well, amazing. Okay. So this is really intriguing because you're saying that the one touch method that you described is not how you work, that it has to be, you yeah. know, a regular interaction. And the other thing you mentioned as well, too, is that you have to be very attentive and listening quite well to a particular person and hearing yeah. what it is they're saying so you can have an understanding about how to reach them in a particular way. Yeah. And so these seem as if they're quite labor intensive. <laughs> yeah. 
which is something I'm learning about recently right, right now as well, too, that uh, I, I think I've been under a delusion for a while that things happen quite quickly. And the expectation is, is that, oh, wow, this is like what I want, or this is what I want to know about, I should be able to get this understood quite, quite quickly. But uh, I'm starting to come to the realization myself that it's, it's all a long process, like whatever it is that we want to do in Mm -hmm. our lives, like we have to accept that there's trial and error, there's success, Mm -hmm. there's failure, and there's just got to be a constant application of learning along the way. Yeah, I think of I think of the things we learn, which is not just knowledge, because we learn values and we learn ways of being in the world too. Like so we learn a lot of things that are not just facts. And I think of all of our learnings as uh, these like constellations of things or webs of things that are constantly kind of expanding and fluctuating and being reworked a little bit, right? And it's all about those relationships that we have with the people and places that we're learning with and from. And, you know, like like the example that you just gave earlier about the fire tower, that when you're in the fire tower, you learned a lot because you could be in touch with nature more deeply. One of the lessons that I learned in the Klaklaches project with the Wasainich, I got to sit with Jacinton, who's a scientist in the Wasainich community. It was so incredible because... He has a story of when he was a young man and in one of the ways that they were taught very young to understand ecology, because we were geeking out about ecology, was that he was, he went into the forest and he chose a tree, a sapling, right? When he was very little and he had to go and visit that sapling regularly and he had to see and just be in the place with the sapling. That is an incredible practice. Because it allows you to see the changes in seasons and organisms and, and the site and you build a relationship with that sapling. You're not like, it's not just a tree, it's a relative, you know. And so, and he, his whole life went back to that same place with that same tree and had a relationship with it, right? And because of that, he understood the tree not to be just the tree, but its place in the forest and his place in relation to the tree. And I think a lot about that because knowledge is like that. Knowledge is is not just one tree. It's all these different interconnections and webs like ecology. And so it's funny because in the last 10 years, as I got more into learning sciences, people are literally using the ecology metaphor to understand learning systems. And I'm like, right? (laughs) I'm like, I'm an ecologist. I totally get that. So I've written that way too. In some of the publications I've done, I've used ecology to like help us understand learning. That learning isn't one moment or one person or one test or, you know, that's actually not learning. That's assessment. What learning is, is all these different interconnections we have in our brains. My mind's blown. Just, whoa. (laughs) Thinking about this individual uh, just going to visit one sapling and going back. What would that be like if we all did that, right? Like, how would we care differently? (sighs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think about that a lot. And, and. Some of the stuff that I do now where I'm advising different learning design efforts in, you know, various states in the U.S. and around the world, like I actually bring those types of ideas into play. Like, what if we just did this? Like, could we just change the classroom to be outside instead of inside? And lots of people do that and think about that, but not lots of people do it. People do do it and think about it. It's just not the norm because schools actually don't answer the question, how do we best learn? Schools answer the question, how do we best pass a specific set of knowledge to the maximum number of people in the shortest amount of time? 
<laughs> right? So that's depressing. Yes, schools are not necessarily what we foster deep, meaningful learning in. They could be, but they're not necessarily. Yeah. Well, what do you think you want to try to accomplish in the next uh, decade of your your working life? Do you have a goal that uh, or something that you'd like to achieve and and work towards in that period of time? Or do you think like that or not quite? I do. I'm a planner. (laughs) So I always have a five year plan. It's it's open and flexible, but I always have a five year plan. So I have thought of that recently, actually. A couple of years ago, I shifted a bunch of my workload and have it's starting to actually bear fruit now, like that I'm able to do the things I hoped I would be able to do. I started a company called Clear Environmental. The company basically takes all the things I really like to do and makes them the center of what I get to do. You know, so like I've been asked to work with some big companies and I was able to basically say, well... I'll only work with you if, you know, we can do this and we can do this and we can do this. So like sustained learning, I get to work with your leadership and the middle like organic leaders that are in your organization. I get to define who that is and all of them have to come. <laughs> and uh, and you're going to pay for that. And it's going to be a team of us that come in and help work. And when we advise you on things, you're going to think deeply about that. You're going to co-design this with us. We're not just delivering it. You're working with us to think with us about this. And uh, it's incredible what you can do. So my goal is evolving a little bit over the next decade. And basically, I want to work with some of the biggest organizations or entities. So they're not always companies, right? They could be networks. And I want to help them foster this type of systemic change. I want to get the people who are making the decisions and doling out the money to care and to connect with these types of deeper, longer sustainability kind of moves. And um, for whatever reason, the work I've done in the last 10 years has actually put me in the right position to do this. And so I kind of feel now responsible to do it, right? Because I have access to all these people. And something we didn't really talk about, but that's kind of infused through everything I do is because I feel this kind of environmental connection and responsibility to just try to figure out how humans can really be and work in relationship to any particular environment they live in, there is no singular answer how we do that. We have to collectively figure that out, right? But how we get together and collectively pull together the best knowledges, the best thinking in a given place is not about what your title is. It's not about how many degrees you have. It's about all of these different knowledge systems. And because of that, how do we get people to listen to each other? is like my goal for the next decade. How do we get people to actually get into conversation with each other in meaningful ways where they really hear the resources that they're each bringing to the table and that they can start to see new ways of doing it? So a lot of the work I'm doing is trying to provide some good examples of what that looks like and then from those examples develop some tools that we can use. Um, And there's some great ones out there, but... Sometimes people just aren't aware of them. So and those tools might be practices. Like, how do we sit around in our community here on Pender Island and actually have good conversations, right? And we've done a few pilots here on this island. The Pender Earth work that we did, where we had community conversations up at the hall, a whole bunch of different people from different walks of life came into those conversations and were like, all right, here's like five topic areas. What do you want to do in them? 
right? And just how we facilitate that conversation is pretty cool, you know? So more of that. Yeah. So I don't know if this is accurate, but it's my perception. And I've come into this thinking in the last couple of years that there is a significant disability within people to have pretty good communication. <laughs> we don't foster it in our society, I don't think. I don't think. Like, because we basically, especially now, like with the world so rush, 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 and social media is like, we basically are in echo chambers of like people who think the same, mm. right? And so we're like, oh, yeah, I'm totally right. I get entrenched in my values or my my thinking because I, everybody around me is saying I'm right, right? <laughs> and so I'm like, yeah, well, your world's a really small little bubble because you're only talking to people that think like you. <laughs> and one of the things I adore about Pender, which might sound weird coming from me, but one of the things I adore about Pender is that we're all so different. And like, I don't want to have close relationships with people who are just like me. Because then they would constantly just reinforce one way of being and thinking. And that would be really boring. And so, like, how do we create diversity and live in that diversity and be good with it and still actually be sustainable? Because, you know, there are opinions in the world today that I think are radically wrong. And I love to argue with people who are wrong. <laughs> right? But... That doesn't mean I won't learn something from them in the process and they won't learn something from me and we can come to a better, like, closer understanding of how we can be in the world, right? Mm -hmm. It seems like a couple of times during this conversation and with what you just said that it seems to me that you're pretty okay with conflict. I don't think of it as conflict. I think it's the reason. Okay. So to me, when somebody disagrees with me or when I disagree with them, however you want to frame that, um, I don't necessarily think that's conflict, Right. I've spent most of my professional life in what people would consider conflict zones. I was a woman in forestry 30 years ago. I was, you know, an educator focused on climate change. I'm an educator who, like, is very anti-racist oriented. So, yeah, those tend to be areas where people think about conflict. But to me, conflict is a competitive stance that I have to be right and you are wrong, right? Like, that's the stance. But I don't think that. Even if I don't agree with you, I don't necessarily think everything you have to offer is wrong. There's got to be something valuable, <laughs> right? And so I want to figure out how to pull us into collaboration so we can find our way closer. Because frankly, I care a lot about ensuring that we do the least damage to the ground we're standing on and that we find a way for humanity as a population to proceed in a way that's hopefully without conflict because that's what geography taught me studying geography most resource management conflicts are things that start wars and war is not pretty it's not pretty and it's not something i want to ever subject my children to and so let's figure out how to reduce resource conflicts and resource conflicts are like the root of almost all types of issues that come into social conflict so let's figure out our resource conflicts and not do that 
Yeah, it, it's interesting. Like, and the reason I use the word conflict is because I've been thinking about conflict myself the last couple yeah. of days, and my, my desire to avoid it. <laughs> right. I don't like conflict. Yeah. But I think redefining what that is yeah. with a different word and how what you just said, how yeah. I can pull someone into collaboration yeah. and look at it from that standpoint and assess what I can learn from that person. Yeah. But I think uh, just having the word conflict on my mind versus having the word collaboration on my mind, there's two different feelings. Yeah that ripple through my body, right? Yeah, you know, the other thing about conflict, the word conflict that I think about is when somebody is in conflict, they're always trying to look for the win, hmm. right? Because they're feeling, otherwise, if you're not looking for the win, then maybe you're going to lose, right? And if we get into like win-lose dynamics, in, in resource management, we talk a lot about the prisoner's dilemma, that if you're not in good communication, like two prisoners separated and they it's a whole thing you have to look up the prisoners dilemma okay okay it's been a while since i explained it all but basically like if two people commit a crime and they're separated in interrogation mm -hmm. if they don't have a method of communicating between them they're going to make the worst possible decision right for both of them oh anybody who's watched law the, and order knows the that. outcome is yeah right <laughs> yeah the outcome is going to be worse yeah but if there's a way that they can communicate then they can collaborate and make the best possible outcome for both of them mm. but it's only through communication and collaboration that we actually find the best possible solution for everyone mm. right because even in the short term like the one person might win because they don't get arrested or whatever but even that is in the long term not a good move when you're talking about resources because a win for somebody individually is still a long-term loss for humanity. And so we need to rethink how we understand win-lose situations when we think about resource management and environmental issues. There is no win-lose situation for humanity when we think of humanity is what we're focused on. We have to think collectively about it and capitalism in particular as a system can work, but we have to wrap it in humanity kind of principles, right? And right now it's individualism, right? So largely, like the way it sort of multinational corporations operate, they operate outside of any kind of sense of humanitarian, you know, ethic. And so, yeah, there's just, we get into some troubles when we do that because it's a conflict, it's a win-lose situation. And Frankly, when, whenever we're looking at that kind of a dynamic, it's not good from a long-term sustainability perspective. So from conflict, like another word, collaboration is the way through it. But yeah, you're right. It does embody a different kind of reality, doesn't it? No, it certainly does. Yeah. But it's so many of the things you just said there yeah. are so great. And I think ultimately really yeah. at the core of that for me, what, what I've taken away from that is just using any kind of opportunity to develop and deepen further communication with somebody is mm -hmm. going to yield better results yeah. than not. But communication on a one-time episode mm -hmm. is not going to make it. Right. Right. And mainly because you don't necessarily have any sense of accountability to that person. And in a community like Pender, where we all are going to see each other at the grocery store, no matter what Facebook feeling you have on the forum, you're still going to end up, you know, in the grocery store at some point face to face with that person, right? Mm -hmm. There's an accountability there in a small community. And that's what really helps with communication. Because when you actually 
see each other in multiple contexts and are responsible to figuring out how to be in place, not just in this moment and win this argument, right? But next year, you have to be in another place together and the next year too and on into the future, right? And I think that comes back to your question at the beginning of when do you become a Penderite? When you know that you're going to have to live with this person for the next <laughs> 50 years, right? Yeah. And you're not like, I'm just going to move off the island and be done with this, right? So I am responsible not only to this place, but to the, the person I disagree with, yeah. right? And finding a way that we can figure out our problems, you know? Okay. So just a couple more things before we end here. Like one thing I want to touch on is that I've been reading this book recently called Atomic Habits, and it's about developing very small habits to create larger ones, longer lasting ones. And I was just curious from your perspective, is there anything that you can think of for us living on Pender right now that are small, actionable things that we can do to make our island slash our world a little bit better of a place Mm -hmm. to try to build that into larger habits? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so many things. Yeah, some of them collective and some of them individual. Like, I love the fact that almost everybody on Pender composts their food, right? Like their food waste. Food waste is an enormous problem from a climate change perspective. If you put food waste in the regular garbage stream, it causes all sorts of methane problems from landfills. But I would love to see community composting here, right? Like, because there are some people that can't manage it or don't use it in their gardens or don't have an out, whatever. That would be cool to see. Small habits like transportation, rural areas always have issues with transportation related to environment and climate sustainability. But Pender's pretty awesome. Like the car stop program that we have, like that's awesome. And like I need somebody in this community to write the car stop program up and like advertise it out to every other community in the the universe, you know, especially rural communities because it's an awesome system. And, you know, how do we, how do we even do that more organically? Like how could we have like, I can think of ways in our neighborhood where we could, if somebody could organize it, we could do like, um, you know, community shopping day and somebody from that neighborhood is always going to go to the Driftwood that day and anybody else who wants a ride could arrive at this time and we'll go to the Driftwood. And if you think about it, like some of the seniors that live on the island who might want to not want to drive, you could have a regular community driver that goes on a particular day. Somebody could organize that on this island. It would be awesome. It would solve some like senior shopping issues and it would be community transportation from one area to another, like locally sourced. We're not going to have, I personally don't think, that it's going to be government-driven solutions. It's going to be community-grown solutions to our problems. And maybe we, you know, the CRC that has started here, the Community Resource Center, that's awesome because maybe they can figure out how to apply for grants so we can get some money to support those types of things, right? The gas for the person who drives or whatever, right? We're going to find resilience and solutions in each other and in our local how we interact here. And some of that too, like one of the biggest things on this island actually, I know it's a bit of a contentious issue right now, but we got to figure out how to manage our forests, like how to thin the second growth forests so that they're not a fire hazard and how to preferably not cut down large swaths of trees, right? In whatever way we can figure that out locally, but we got to figure that out locally. Because both sides of that problem are a concern, right? The fact that we have second growth that's going to go up like a, like just a matchstick, you know, like if if we don't properly manage it and get it some like, yeah, it's just an issue. And the National Parks has done a pilot here on this island around that. So we need to take that learning and like do that everywhere. 
right, faster than we're doing it because the hotter summers we're getting are a big concern to me. So for fire and more and more people from off island are coming here. That's also a concern from fire management. So sure. Yeah. So those types of things, water, storing water, you know, the everyday little things, I think it's the little things, the atomic habits. Yeah. I mean, the ones I ask myself every day are, do I really need that? Like when I'm in the grocery store, <laughs> I do that a lot. That's a great one. Do I really, do need, I really that? need that? Like Grandma when I'm comes in the grocery back again. store, I literally look at something and I'm like, that was grown in chili. Do I really need it? No. Yeah. Right? You know, do I really need that avocado in the middle of December? No. Guacamole is for summer in California. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, but like, you know, could I take the thing that's more locally grown versus the thing that's further away? Yeah, I could, mm-hmm. you know? And, and that type of decision is the little atomic habit level. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, when I'm going to the store, could I phone my neighbor and see if they need something? Yeah. Yeah, right. well, that's a great one. And yeah. and I think that's fantastic to hear because it's amazing sometimes somebody will, will tell me something that seems so obvious and I'll think, wow, how did I not think of mm-hmm. that? And I, I just hearing about the community rideshare program and implementing that ourselves and and maybe somebody listening to this is gonna say hey yeah maybe i'll do what uh, deb suggested there and ask my neighbor if they need something from the driftwood and that's one small action that uh goes not just to reducing resources but to developing friendship and connection and community that's right it really does deb we are at the end almost of our journey through this um this has been awesome. Thank you. Seriously. <laughs> good. I'm glad we had time to talk. Yeah. Now I want to do the same interview, but the other way around, I want to ask you all these questions. <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you want to add before we finish? Um, I, I think just that, you know, Pender for me is like a, it's a Goldilocks place in some ways. You know, it's just the right size because it's not so big that we can't know each other. Right. And it's not so small that we don't have the diversity of people in the place. And so I think, you know, no matter how much we get into tensions in our community for different reasons, I think we all need to, like, just know that it's it's a gem in the world. I've been, been to a lot of places that are seeing all sorts of devastation in different ways, socially and environmentally. And I feel like Pender just has this incredible potential to be this shining star to the world of how we can do things. So, yeah, super happy to be part of it. Well, I sincerely hope you appreciated that interview. I certainly did. I got so much out of that. And thank you again to Deb for sharing everything she did that day. That was wonderful. If you feel like sharing this podcast and maybe other people might want to hear this, I would greatly encourage you to do that through social media or email or however you choose to. I think we have a lot of incredible voices in our community and in this area of the world. And I would sincerely like to have more people have the opportunity to find out about this podcast. So if you feel like helping me in doing that, that would be so lovely. And if you have any thoughts or ideas as to little ways that you can contribute and try to shape the world into being something more of what you would like to see, I promise you that whatever you choose to do will be a very satisfying period of time in your day. And that if you repeat that action, it'll become addictive to you and it will flourish. I want to thank Ben McConkie for providing the theme music to this podcast. Thank you for sticking around to the end of this one. And until next time.